Well, tonight I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 14 as we continue along in our study of 2 Kings. And in the evenings, I've been reading out of the New Legacy Standard Bible version. It's really the New American Standard that I use in the morning, but updated uh, to include especially the covenant name of the Lord in the Old Testament, which is Yahweh. And uh, that can be a little bit unsettling for English readers who are accustomed to hearing Lord, capital L-O-R-D. But we shouldn't be too disturbed. If you look in the notes, uh, you'll see that your translation, probably whether it's ESV, NIV, King James, may have a footnote that tells you that in your Old Testament, when you see Lord in all capitals, it's actually representing the Hebrew word Yahweh. So... Uh, this is helpful, I think. And, and the difference, it's, it's, again, it's a little bit different for us. But the difference is between, um, for example, my role, my function is pastor. But my name, my personal name, uh, I, I don't get called pastor around the house. I just get called Gabe. Um, my mom's visiting. She's not here tonight, but be assured. Actually, she calls me pastor sometimes. But uh, most of the time it's Gabe. Gabriel when I'm in trouble. But uh, the personal name of God is as he revealed to his people, Yahweh. So, so it's, I'm thankful for this translation, which is uh, really kind of bold in putting that out there. Now, tonight in chapter 14, I want to give you a warning ahead of time that we're going to hear about a lot of Joashes, a lot of Joahazes, a lot of Jeroboams, and Amaziah, Amaziahs and Azariahs. And I want to tell you that you're not alone if you're reading or hearing and you're getting a little bit lost as to who is who. Uh, I confess I've been thinking, you know, if there was a book of baby names in the Old Testament and you just wonder were some of these kings of Israel and Judah just picking all the same names for their kids. It really would have been helpful if they would have been a little bit more distinguished. Uh, but in actuality, sometimes the names are similar between the kings of Israel in the south and Judah in the south and Israel in the north, because from time to time, even though sometimes they were at each other's throats, sometimes it was politically advantageous to, to honor the other kingdom, maybe by a common name. And the reality is these names were probably just popular. So with that, we want to just orient you. In the beginning of chapter 14, we learn about a king named Amaziah. Amaziah is the king of Judah in the south. We're going to learn about him. In Israel, in the north, is a king, uh, let's see if I can get this right, named Jehoash. So it's difficult for me, even with my notes in front of me, to keep, whole, keep uh, clear who's who. But Jehoash is, at this point, king of Israel in the north. And these are the two that we're going to learn of primarily. And then, towards the end of chapter 14, we're going to be introduced to two new kings. In the south is going to be this, we're going to be introduced briefly to this man named Azariah, who is also called Uzziah, you may recognize that, and also Jeroboam, in Israel. It's not the first Jeroboam. This is not Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who's a really bad guy, but a new Jeroboam. All right, so we primarily have Amaziah, king of Judah in the south, Jehoash, king of Israel in the north. To keep that clear, it'd be good. This is God's word. 
In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He, Amaziah, was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoadin of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, yet not like David, his father. He did according to all that Joash, his father, had done. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was strong in his hand that he struck down his servants who had struck down the king of his the king his father. But the sons of those who struck him down he did not put to death, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor sons be put to death for their fathers, but each shall be put to death for his own sin. He, Amaziah, struck down ten thousand of Edom in the valley of Salt, and seized Selah by war, and named it Jokthiel to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face each other. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thorn bush, which was in Lebanon, sent to the cedar, which was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as a wife. But a beast of the field that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thorn bush. You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Enjoy your glory and stay at home, for why should you provoke calamity so that you, even you, would fall and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash, the king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and they fled each to his tent. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, seized Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim, to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver and all the utensils which were found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasuries of the king's house, the hostages also, and returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did and his might and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, became king in his place. And Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they conspired against him in Jerusalem. And he fled to Lachish, But they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. Then they carried him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, 
who was 16 years old and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. For Yahweh saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. But Yahweh did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah in Israel, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel, And Zechariah, his son, became king in his place. Amen. This is God's word. We should pray and ask for help in understanding and application. So let's do that. Our God, we thank you for your whole word, every part of it. All of it is breathed out by you. All of it is perfect. All of it is perfect profitable for our instruction and for knowing how to live before you in this world. We confess, Father, what you already know, that there are portions of your word that we find more difficult. We're separated by time. We don't understand sometimes who these people are. Their names are foreign to us and We thank you that you're so kind and so gracious by your spirit to help us. So we pray now for that help. We pray that we might have something of the intent of your spirit, that we might be changed in part through our reading this portion of your word tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to remind you, as I often do on Sunday evenings in this section of 2 Kings, yes, we are hearing lots of details about all kinds of men whose names begin with a J. Uh, We are learning all kinds of back and forth and son of so-and-so and and son of so-and-so and and son of so-and-so, and it reads a little bit um, like a an obituary, which can be interesting, but sometimes there's a lot of names of family members. You have no idea who they are, and so you just kind of, you know, skip over them. And uh, it may be that in our Bible reading, if we go through the Bible in a year, this may be one of those chapters where in the morning with a cup of coffee, our eyes start to glaze over a little bit, and we struggle. Um, we maybe notice uh, a name like Jonah. That, that's interesting. We think we recognize that, and, and in fact, you do. And yes, it is, in fact, the same Jonah that we learn of in another fish story. So this is, that can happen, and we read along, and, and we wonder, um, 
Why all this detail? So I want to remind you, as I have, that part of what is happening is that the Spirit of God is recording for all of God's people an understanding of how it is that God can make a covenant with Israel, northern Israel, and Judah in the south, an inviolable covenant, a covenant that was unilateral, not dependent upon their, um, their obedience. How could, how could God so say, say that he was going to love them, and yet, as will happen to Israel in the north in a little while, they get hauled off by Assyria. At the time of the writing, originally, of 2 Kings, northern Israel is obliterated. Judah in the south, by the time this book is written, has been hauled off to Babylon. And so there's a record here of understanding of how is it, why is it that God allowed such judgment to come upon his covenant people. And it's a record of the fact that God did not hand them off after one bad king or two. Not after one generation, but after generation, after generation, after generation. God was, in fact, faithful to his name. So the book, at this point, in some ways, is vindicating the name and the faithfulness of God. That he is, in fact, as he says he is, faithful and true, abounding in loving kindness and compassion. It's also telling us, showing us at this point, the fulfillment of God's promise and covenant with David. Again, if we don't have Second Kings with all these son of so-and-so and son of so-and-so and son of so-and-so, we don't have Christmas and we don't have Easter because we have no Jesus, son and descendant of David. And so, yes, there's a lot of details here and maybe a little bit difficult for us to follow, but it is important biblical history that we need to let our hearts be open to a little bit. Uh, maybe not a little bit, maybe a lot. I want to cons- uh, frame our, our meditation tonight on chapter 14 around the word grace. Because here we're seeing the unfolding again of God's unfathomable grace. Grace upon grace to his people, even when his people are habitually turning from him. And first, in verses 1 through 16, we see grace mishandled. Grace mishandled. God has shown grace to Israel in the north, but now in chapter 14, the beginning of chapter 14, the focus shifts to Judah in the south. Uh, Remember, uh, just to back up, God gave the whole land of Israel, the promised land, to his people, to the 12 tribes. But right after the reign of Solomon, because of their sin and their, their rebelling against God, God judged them by separating them. And so you have primarily the 10 tribes of Israel in the north, Judah and Benjamin in the south. So here we have in the south, Amaziah in chapter 14, verse 1. He's the king of Judah. And at first we get a, a uh, rather positive review, at least we think so. Uh, he was 25 years old when he became king. Uh, and he reigned 29, 25 years, I'm sorry, 29 years in Jerusalem. Uh, that, that even there is a bit of a grace. Every time there's a transition in the reign of the kings of one of these nations, it's, it's a time of upheaval. 
you start to wonder if, if the father dies, uh, is somebody else going to die? Is there going to be trouble? And so every time there was a transition, if there, uh, there was usually some difficulty, there could be. And so when you had a longer reign, that was, in fact, a gift to his people, God's gift to his people. Because even if you had a not-so-great king, at least you had some measure of stability for a few years. And he did, verse 3, what was right in the sight of Yahweh, for the most part. And not like David. Not like David. David wasn't literally his father, but his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. He was in the line of David. He didn't have a heart like David that was completely devoted to the Lord. He was more like his father, verse 3, Joash. Um, he didn't remove the high places, and he still permitted uh, sacrifice and burning incense on the high places. Now, if any of you happen to be following along in our guide, our friend uh, Dale Ralph Davis and his commentary still, if you, if you haven't picked it up in a while, I encourage you to do so. Uh, it would be really helpful. Uh, just in our series here, for those of you who are visiting, it's a helpful commentary that uh, we've some, some have been reading in our evening for our evening sermons, uh, just as a guide and study during the week. But he points out, and I appreciate this, he points out that by the time we get to chapter 14, verse 3, we who are reading tend to think, oh, good, he wasn't that bad. All right. And Dale Ralph Davis points out, that's a problem. When medi- mediocrity and compromise becomes ah, pretty good. We have a problem. And could it be that just because God permits the kingdom to continue, that in reality he's not pleased, and it becomes clear he's not pleased with Amaziah. But we tend to say, oh, that's just the way things are. You know, God, we're only human. (laughs) It's not in the Bible, but I don't want to speak for God, but the theology of the Bible at least suggests that God looks at us and says, yeah, I know you're human, I made you, and I made you perfect, and I made you in my image, and I made you to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, all your strength. I didn't make you for this kind of mediocre slop that is so typical of the kings of Israel, of Judah, even in the south, and even we who may think of ourselves as orthodox and our doctrines sound solid Bible people. Is it possible that where once maybe our hearts burned for the Lord, we become cool, but we settle for thinking, eh, you know, we do mostly what is right in the sight of the Lord. And so what if there's a few sacrifices taking place on the hills? Uh, I've been convicted by that. I just wanted to share that with you. Um, But it's so true that we can just read this and settle for it and just say that's the way things are. And we want to remember that God is after full, wholehearted devotion. That even when we settle, that doesn't mean that God settles. That the Lord Jesus still is calling us to take up our cross, to follow him, to express our love for the Lord Jesus in every aspect of our lives, to love him and to serve him. So Amaziah did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, but his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord like David. 
and even in spite of the fact that he was a recipient of grace. It was a grace that he was even king of Judah, because you remember that just one generation before, his father was a little boy who was made king in Judah, and but for the grace of God, the line of David would have been done. This is grace that the line of, Ju- of David is even still around in Judah, and Messiah is a recipient of grace, and he initially demonstrates that he does recognize the grace of the Lord. He follows the law of the Lord when he carries out justice and he strikes down those who killed his father. He moderates his vengeance with the law of the Lord, which is good. God had commanded in the law of Moses, the, the, the law of God, really, that if, <clears throat> excuse me, if there was judgment, that judgment was to be measured out only to those who were guilty of the sin itself. And so in verses 6 and 7, we see a little bit of an instance, example that Amaziah actually read his Bible. Um, the kings of Israel and Judah actually were commanded in the law to write out a copy of the law in their own hand and to keep it with them all their days. We're not told that Amaziah did that, but at least he'd been exposed to the law of God, and at least he'd heeded it enough that when he carried out vengeance on his father's murder, he was careful to not kill the children of the fathers who had killed his father. And so he did follow the law of God to a degree. And then in verse 7, this is uh, hard for us. You know, we don't like the idea of all this bloodshed, but the reality is that at that time, Edom was a perennial enemy of God's people. And so this verse 7 is another instance, example of Amaziah receiving grace. He's been a recipient of a great heritage. He has the kingship. He has the law of God. And God even gives him a great victory over the perennial enemies of Judah, the Edomites. And it's a, it's a decisive victory in verse 7. He takes down 10,000 Edomites. This is a major battle. This is all grace. But it's very easy for us to mishandle grace and to mistake grace for personal achievement. Isn't it? And Amaziah in verse 8 lets his heart become enlarged, not a physical condition, but a spiritual condition. He, tends to, he begins to forget where he came from. He begins to forget who it is that gave him all that he has, and he starts to be overly impressed with himself. So much so that once he's done with the Edomites in his own heart, he starts to think, well, you know what? Those pesky relatives to the north, Israel, they've given it to us a few times. It's time that we here in Judah give them the first blow. So he writes a letter to to the king of Israel, to Jehoash. And he says, come on, let's fight. Um, Even that sounds like about a three-year-old boy. Um, and three of, we have some young boys here. I did that. This is what, this is what three-year-old boys do. I mean, this is, it's okay when you're, well, mom, 
Maybe it's not okay. I'm getting, I'll just stop that whole line. But, but it's, it's, it's just immature. It shouldn't be coming out of the mouth of a king, a leader of Judah. And he says basically to the king of Israel, hey, come on, let's fight. And Jehoash, the king of Israel, who himself has been a recipient of grace, he's the one that God gave three victories to. Remember, he's the guy who went and visited Elisha. And when Elisha was dying, God told him that he could take some arrows and smash the ground. And and this is the guy that only smashed the ground three times. And Elisha was all upset. You should have smashed it at least five or six times because then you would have really obliterated those Arameans. This is that same guy, that king of Israel in the north. He's had his own uh, examples of being recipient of grace. And in wisdom here, he writes back to the king of Judah, to Amaziah, and he shares a little story, a little parable. In other words... This little story about a thorn bush and a cedar and a beast. The moral of the story is this little puny little thorn bush thought it could carry on with the cedars. And just a, just a bush, I mean a beast came along and just thrashed it. It was just trampled down. Didn't take much, in other words. A beast can't trample down a huge cedar of Lebanon. But a little thorn bush, sure. So, verse 10, the king of Israel in the north, Jehoash, speaks the truth. He's actually spot on in verse 10. He says to Amaziah, indeed, you have struck down Edom and your heart has lifted you up. That's it. And he's right. Enjoy your glory. Stay at home. For why should you provoke calamity? Even you would fall in Judah with you. But Amaziah would not listen. Not listening to wisdom is a form of pride. And Amaziah's heart is full at this point, so full of himself that he can't even listen to sensible reason when it comes. We can do this too. Uh, This is why it's so important every once in a while when you start to sense that in your heart, maybe it's not every once in a while. Hopefully, if we're walking with the Lord, hopefully, if we're conscious of our sins against God being dealt with in the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are of all people to be humble people. We have the blood of Christ on us. What do we have to be proud about again, exactly? What do we have that we haven't received? And yet, we all know that we doesn't take much for our little hearts to start to think. Uh, well, some of you, I, 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 this is what I, I do sometimes. There's a little children's song, My God is so great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you. Anybody else know this song? Oh, good, I'm, all right, I'm not crazy. So, you know what happens? We start to, this is basically when we start to think we're all that, I am so great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that I cannot do. Yoo-hoo! I am so great, so strong. I mean, that's how we think in our self-sufficiency. Uh, and, and sometimes, oh, we're going to get close here to the bone. How's our praying? Because if we're not praying, asking God for help, well, 
I guess we don't think we need it. We got this. I am so great. No. Amaziah was proud. And he was about to get humbled. So, just to make clear there, I'm suggesting that every once in a while, you don't listen to the self-esteem gurus and you actually make fun of yourself and put yourself down. I regularly have to say to my, oh, wow, you are something, Gabe. <laughs> this, that, was, that was a great sermon. No, actually, I don't think that very often. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, it, it's okay. There's a holy kind of mocking of your own proud little heart. And maybe some of us need to do that more than others. So Amaziah, though he didn't do that, he let his heart get away from him. And the result was that he was humbled the hard way. And that's the way it always is. If we don't humble ourselves, then God or someone else will. And he is humbled in a hard, bad way. The king of Israel in the north comes down and basically he really, God gives the victory to Israel in the north. Verse 13, Jehoash seizes Amaziah and not only do they have the victory, they march down with all the captives down to Jerusalem itself and they tear down 600 feet of that wall. Now this is a massive wall. This is an impressive wall. This took, this took a lot of money, a lot of time to build and he has such, the king of Israel in the north has won the victory so much that he absolutely owns Jerusalem and has the power and the ability to dismantle 600 feet of the wall. And 600 feet of the wall effectively means that Jerusalem is defenseless. You can march an army through 600 feet. This is not just a gate down. Jerusalem is with Amaziah humbled. And not only that, they march right into the house of the Lord and they take the gold and silver, verse 14, utensils which were found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasuries of the king's house. Now, this isn't the first time. This has happened numerous times. We're starting to think, how is it that there's by this time any silver or gold in the house of the Lord? This has happened numerous times. And it's a foreshadowing. In other words, it's a looking ahead It's a warning to Judah that if they don't turn around, there's a king coming named Babylon, the kingdom named Babylon, and they're going to come, and they're not going to take down 600 feet of wall. They're going to take down every inch of the wall. They're going to burn the temple to the ground, and they're going to haul off all the gold and all of the citizens. In other words, we're being reminded here that God gave warning after warning after warning to Israel and Judah before they experienced exile. And so Amaziah is humiliated. Jerusalem is subdued. In this whole first section, verses 1 through 16, this was grace mishandled. Mishandled first and foremost by Amaziah, king of Judah in the south, but in a way also mishandled by Jehoash in the king of Israel in the north. He had gone to Elisha, the prophet of Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given him victory over the Arameans. And he hadn't hit the ground with the arrows four times, only three times. But yet God threw in a bonus victory over Judah. And instead of figuring, oh, the God of Israel, Yahweh, who ordered that he be worshipped in Jerusalem 
is the God who saved me. I'll honor him. I'll, I'll leave his worship intact in the temple. Instead, he hauls off the gold and uses it for the places of worship set up by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, in Bethel and Samaria with the golden calves. Jehoash, the king of Israel, doesn't recognize the grace of God, and neither does Amaziah in the south. Well, secondly tonight, and we'll move quickly, in verses 17 through 20 now, we learn the, the scene goes back to Amaziah. He lives 15 years after Jehoash dies, the king in the north, and Amaziah lives as a humiliated king, uh, but then he dies by being murdered by some who conspired against him, verse 19. Let's call this disgrace recognized. If we had grace mishandled in verses 1 through 16, in these verses at least we have disgrace recognized. In other words, Amaziah had made such a hash of it, such a mess of it, that even his own people recognize we need to be done with him. And he ends in shame, killed and murdered by his own people. They at least give him a burial back in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David, verse 20. But that's all that can be said about Amaziah. Somewhat of an okay start and ends in absolute folly and disgrace. Well, thirdly and finally tonight, in verses 21 and following, we come now to grace undeserved. We've seen grace mishandled, disgrace recognized, and Amaziah was a disgrace. Now we come to grace undeserved. Grace undeserved. A first indication of God's grace undeserved poured out upon Judah and Israel is that in verses 21 and 22, the people took Ju- of Judah took Azariah, who is 16 years old. Now this Azariah is, as I said in the introduction, none other than Uzziah. The very man that book of Isaiah in chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Uzziah did also fall into pride like his father. But Uzziah had a lengthy reign, 52 years. That itself was another evidence of God's grace in Judah. And Uzziah did follow the Lord most of his life. It could have been a lot worse. And God could have, after Amaziah, God could have given Judah an absolute fool. But he gives them Uzziah, gives him a long period of reign, and this is a kindness. And then in verse 23, we learn that in Israel, in the north, God raised up Jeroboam. This is the Jeroboam, this is the second Jeroboam in Israel. The first Jeroboam is none other than that Jeroboam, son of Nebat. We keep hearing about him, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He's the one who set up the false worship of the golden calves in the first place. This is Jeroboam too. And man, this is like, this is like being named Judas. I mean, Jeroboam is, don't, oops, sorry, if anybody here is named, don't name you. Well, we'll talk about that if your name's Jeroboam. There's grace, but, but probably not on the list of names to name your son, Jeroboam. He, he was like Jeroboam, the son of Debat, an evil king. Verse 24, he did what was 
evil in the sight of the Lord, and he reigned 41 years. You're saying, what's the grace in that? Well, not much. But we are told that God, even though Israel in the north by this time was so idolatrous, so blasphemous, so apostate, and even had a king named Jeroboam, that still God sent in his grace his word through a prophet named Jonah. God didn't only send Jonah to Nineveh. God sent Jonah, first of all, to wicked apostate Israel in the north. And that is a sign of God's grace. And the reason God sent Jonah, verse 26, we're told. Why did God send Jonah to Israel? Because he was fed up with them. He couldn't stand him anymore. And he was, he was fit to be tied. Well, he was angry, yes, but no, verse 26 doesn't tell us that. He saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor any helper for Israel. Wow. God still had a heart of compassion for this wretched people in the north who had been engaged in idolatrous worship for generations? Yeah, that's the way God is. He has a heart for sinners, real ones. He is, as his name, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. That loving kindness there is that Hebrew word hesed, which speaks of his covenant love, his undeserved love that he sets upon his people. And verse 27, he did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel. You'd think he would. You'd think he'd just say, that's it. And there are some throughout church history and some today who effectively in their theology, God's done with Israel. But we learn in Romans chapter 11, no, no, no. God is going to renew them in the last days. Yeah, even Israel in the north. And so this is undeserved grace. This is truly amazing grace that God bestows upon Israel, even in the days of Jeroboam. And God saved them, verse 27, by the hand of Jeroboam. God used this wretched, evil king even, and the 41 years of his reign to give his beleaguered, suffering people in the north a little bit of a breather and an opportunity to respond to the preaching of prophets like Jonah if only they would repent and turn to the Lord. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't. And so as Assyria and the judgment is coming soon, but God, it's not because God was not gracious or forbearing. Well, in verses 28 and 29, in closing, the rest of the Acts of Jeroboam, we learned that that's recorded in the book of Chronicles. It is. And then Jeroboam slept with his father, and Zechariah became king in his place. Jeroboam, Walter Kaiser, great Old Testament theologian, in his book of History of Israel, writes that Jeroboam, this Jeroboam II, Two was the greatest of all the kings of northern Israel. Not because of his righteousness, but in terms of his power 
And here it is in the late years of Israel's national existence. And God is still in his mercy guarding his people from foreign nations through this Jeroboam. Grace undeserved. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. God's grace calls for a response, doesn't it? It calls for us not to be lax, not to be indifferent. It calls for us to be grateful, to be humble, and to learn from these men and to turn again to the Lord with all our heart. Let's pray that that may be so. Our Father, we thank you for the lessons learned. We don't want to be proud and indifferent like these kings of Judah and Israel. We recognize that so often there is the same kind of uplifted heart within us. Forgive us. May your spirit continue that gracious work of convicting us of sin, of humbling us. Please don't let us go. Oh God, we pray, wound us, do whatever you must, but keep us from a big head and an enlarged heart. May we be humble before the true King of Israel, the Lord Jesus. And may we tonight, as we continue in song and in praise and prayer, and this week, may we bless you, our gracious God, for you are the same with us. You've shown us so much grace. You've been so faithful to us. You've answered countless prayers, and yet we still wander. We still don't love you as we ought. And so we bless you and we thank you for your amazing, holy grace. We love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.